Hello, and welcome to the Storyteller's Mission with Zena Del Lowe, a podcast for artists and storytellers about changing the world for the better through story. Last week, I introduced the fifth and final keynote of godly storytelling, the possibility of redemption. But if you recall, I ran out of time. So today, I want to present the rest of that episode. Because in addition to making sure that our stories offer our characters the possibility of redemption, we need to understand what redemption actually looks like. Because you see, it isn't as clear-cut as simply having the characters, quote, do the right thing. Or rather, it is. It's just that sometimes in this fallen world, it's not clear what the right thing to do is. The right thing becomes obscured or murky. So we need to have some kind of clear guideline or clear understanding of what redemption actually looks like. What constitutes redemption? How do we get it? How do our characters attain it? Because if we don't have a clear and true understanding of this, then we're in danger of leading our audiences astray. We're in danger of perpetuating a false morality. And that's why this discussion is important. The stakes are high, given our moral responsibilities to our audience. Now, when I ended the last episode, I had just gotten to the part where I talked about how in the hero's journey... Part of what your character must do is either become his or her best self and therefore they become heroes or they will become their worst self. They will give in to their worst fears, their worst instincts, and they will fail. And that is called a tragedy. And I also mentioned when it comes to the possibility of redemption, what I argued is that a character must have a choice. At some point in the story, they must have an opportunity to choose the good and grace must be offered to them. Whether or not they take it is another story. But I also said that it was very important for us to understand the difference between what is really good and what is pseudo good. And this is what brought in the discussion of legalism, because legalists think they know what is good. They have rules. But inevitably, in your story, your main character is going to be faced with some sort of moral dilemma, where what seems to be the right thing, the clear-cut thing to do, may not in fact be the right thing to do. And it's at that point that his heart is put to the test. Because, see, a true hero can differentiate between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And this is why a discussion of legalism is relevant. Because legalists cannot do that. This is where morality gets murky sometimes. And this is where a lot of us as Christians make mistakes. Let me see if I can explain that. I often read stories where the writer thinks that they're showing a good character, doing the right thing, making the hard choice because it's the right thing to do, when in reality, that character is not actually noble or heroic. Instead, he or she is pompous and proud. Now, this is one of the primary differences between what I would call a legalist and a hero. When a legalist puts principles before people, 
It's because of some misguided, rigid, stubborn pride that he can't let go of, which makes him unwavering and relentless. But when a good man or a hero puts principles before people, he does it because he must, because he believes in something bigger than himself, some ultimate good or truth that must be honored. But when he does it, it hurts him to do it. It hurts because it grieves him. He is torn inside. You see, the legalist isn't really torn. They simply have already made up their mind. There's no deliberating. There's no second guessing. There's no consideration. It's just the principle. Boom, done. But the person who is heroic or godly or good wrestles with it because he is aware of what he'll lose. It will cost him something to do it. Let's look at the man for all seasons. This is a story about Sir Thomas More, a good friend of King Henry's, who ends up being put to death by Henry at the end of the story. Why? Because Henry's first wife can't bear children. And so Henry wants to have the marriage annulled, and then he wants Sir Thomas to bless the king's marriage to another wife who could presumably give the king an heir. The stakes are high. Henry would say the kingdom itself is at stake. All Thomas needs to do is give his approval. Just say it's okay. And this is his friend. They have been friends since childhood. How hard could that be? And yet Thomas couldn't do it. His conscience wouldn't allow him to say that the king was justified. In Thomas's heart, he believed there were no grounds for the king's divorce. Therefore, it was the wrong thing to do. And he had to stand up for that. And he paid for that conviction with his life. So was Thomas prideful, stubborn, arrogant, rigid, legalistic? Or was he righteous, brave, noble, a convicted and thoughtful, humble, uncompromising, bold man? Sometimes these two traits are very close cousins, and yet they are not at all the same. Compare Thomas More to Javert from Les Mis. Wasn't Javert just following his own convictions? Wasn't he trying to do the right thing just like Thomas was? No, because Javert followed the rules and applied them with a blind sense of self-righteousness. He never considered the man Jean Valjean. He never pondered anything. He dogmatically staked his life on the rules, the rules, the rules, in a rigid and religious, relentless way. When characters don't believe in something noble, something bigger than themselves, for the right reasons, they risk becoming self-centered egoists. Javert was egotistical. He was a legalist. He took the heart out of the equation, which is why he jumped to his death after Jean Valjean saved his life. You see, Jean Valjean's actions were those of a godly man doing the right thing because it was the right thing to do. Jean Valjean saved Javert, even knowing that Javert would hunt him down again later. And when he did that, it threw Javert into an existential crisis. Everything he thought he knew to be true was now brought into question. The world no longer made sense to him. He had known with every fiber of his being that Jean Valjean was a thief, a criminal, a morally reprehensible individual who was beyond the possibility of redemption. And yet, he was wrong. 
So what was a man like Javert supposed to do? Well, he could have repented. This is what we're supposed to do when we are confronted with the wrongness of our preconceived beliefs. This is what we're supposed to do when we find out that our very strongly held beliefs are actually false. This is what God expects us to do when we encounter truth that is so vivid that it blows our preconceptions out of the water. We are supposed to repent. And guess what? That is the possibility of redemption. Javert was given that possibility, just as Jean Valjean had been given at the beginning of the story. But Javert was unrepentant. His heart was hard. In his pride, he chose suicide over and against bowing before God in humility and allowing God to teach him a new way to live, to reform his heart. Compare this to Jean Valjean at the beginning of the story. Very, very similar circumstances. Jean Valjean also had a choice to make. And like Javert, Jean Valjean's preconceived ideas were challenged by an act of pure kindness. He had believed the world to be harsh, unkind, and unfair. And so he had acted in what he saw to be a justifiable self-preservation way when he stole the bishop's candlesticks. But then he was caught. And here he's brought before this man of God. And all the bishop needs to do is tell the truth. Tell the truth that Jean Valjean stole the candlesticks. And it'll send Jean Valjean away forever. Now look at this. Notice this. The bishop was confronted with a situation where the right thing to do was not in fact the right thing to do. To a legalist, there would have been no need for deliberation. The right thing would simply be to tell the truth, period. Jean Valjean got himself in this situation, so by God, I'm just going to tell the truth. It's not on me. No compassion, no mercy would have accompanied that conversation. But the bishop, you see, was not a legalist. He was a good man with true compassion, and he had mercy on Jean Valjean's soul. So he chose a lesser evil in order to do the right thing, which, by the way, is one of the realities of living in this fallen world. Sometimes we have to choose between two evils. And yes, it is true that it's still evil. Lying is still wrong. And yet this good man chose to lie because that was the only way to do the better right thing. What a complicated world we live in, which is why it's really hard. It's really hard and why it's so tempting for us to become legalists because we don't want to have to work that hard to have to make such difficult choices. You see, it's much easier for us to already know that, oh, we just always have to do this blank and then we're not torn but we're called to actually think more carefully than that. We're called to apply the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law, which is something legalists cannot do. Tricky morality indeed. But out of this encounter, Jean Valjean repents. He chooses to become an honorable and dignified man. He becomes kind. 
a devoted father figure to a little girl who's lost her mother, and he becomes a benefactor to anyone and everyone in need. And although he is a known criminal and a parolee, he grows morally to represent the best traits of humanity. Why? Because he had a choice. We must leave open the possibility of the character choosing the good. As Corey Ten Boom said, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. So let's go back to Monk for a minute. He's clean, rigidly so, but he follows his own rules out of terror, not because it's the right thing to do. And this is how I see legalism. Legalism is self-directed will. It is attempting to make oneself righteous, but it's done out of fear or out of a need to prove one's worth or out of a fear of not being enough. Beneath legalism is a great drive to justify oneself before God and man. Because if I can prove that I am so morally pure, then look at that. I am justified. Legalism is really a need to be seen by others as righteous. And therefore, it's a system of rules that one can check off and then compare to those who are not as disciplined as them or not as rigid. And guess what? Then I can feel superior over them. But that is not spirituality. That is not spiritual maturity. That is not even of God. The Pharisees were like that. The Pharisees were condemned with far more heat and venom than anyone else. My friend Rod recently gave a sermon on how we should give law to the proud and grace to the humble. Why? Because the law should humble a man when he realizes he can't live up to it. But those that are already humbled, they don't need to be broken. Their hearts are already soft. Instead, they need to be handled gently. They need to be told that they are loved because they already feel unlovable. They already feel unworthy. But how often do we get these two wrong in the church? How often do we rebuke harshly those who need to be loved and we love those who need to be rebuked? People in authority who are abusing their positions of power are often left alone because no one wants to confront their behavior, either out of fear of retribution by that abusive person or sometimes out of a misguided admiration. Everyone walks on eggshells in order to avoid setting off that abusive person. If you're involved in a church like this, let me tell you something, it is wrong. And if you allow it to continue, then you are guilty too. Christ didn't rebuke the woman at the well with harsh language. He didn't tell her what a horrible sinner she was. He approached her with kindness and gentleness. He let her know she was loved. But look at how Jesus approached the Pharisees. You brood of vipers. You whitewashed tombs. That is some harsh language. He didn't use gentle words. He called them out on their sin, their pride, their self-righteous attitude. And yet, he loves them just as much. In fact, he had the same goal in mind. In both cases, what his goal was, was to realign their hearts. It's just that the Pharisees' hearts were so hardened that they had become righteous in their own eyes. And Jesus had to jar them out of their pride and arrogance. So he used language that was appropriate in order to get through. Language that could shock them. 
language that could break through all of the barriers of pride that they have built. And that is called tough love. And sometimes it's the right thing to do. Which brings me back to Ragdoll. The short film I told you about, about my own true story, being married to a gay man for eight and a half years of my life. And I mentioned that Ragdoll was a tragedy. For both characters, by the way, they're both so unhappy, so miserable. And I needed to jar my audience. I needed to break through their preconceived ideas and rattle them enough to hear what I had to say. But in doing that, I had Christians who, even though they had good intentions, they questioned my very salvation. These people wanted me to tell a story where that situation was redeemed. To them, that is what would have constituted Christianity if I would have brought hope to a situation like that. But I could not do that because I didn't believe that and I didn't experience that either. It was a hopeless situation and not because a marriage could never survive something like that. There are examples of marriages that have survived that sort of situation. But the key is repentance. In Ragdoll, the situation was hopeless because the characters couldn't or wouldn't repent. The possibility of redemption was there. Grace was available. It was offered. But the key, as always, was repentance. The key is repentance. A humble, repentant heart. Where there is no repentance, there can be no restoration, no reconciliation, no redemption. Repentance is the key. So the possibility of redemption, yeah, it existed. But sometimes characters are given an opportunity to do the right thing, an opportunity to repent, to be free. And sometimes they say no. So there is room in God's economy for hopelessness, but only if the story had the possibility of redemption. They must have the ability to repent. I want to thank you for joining me today. I hope that you've gotten something out of today's discussion. And if you have, would you send me an email or leave me a voicemail? There's a really easy way to do it. In the notes section, there is a link and it will allow you to leave me a voicemail message just right there, one click. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your story. I'd love to hear how this series is affecting you and your writing. In the meantime, you have been listening to the Storytellers Nation with Zena Dello. May you go forth inspired to change the world for the better through stories.